Well, Kathy and I went to London several years ago uh, on a layover to Israel. We went to Israel and we, uh, the layout, we knew the layover was going to be in London, so we decided to go a couple days early because, you know, like how often do you get to go to London? And I was particularly intrigued by a saying, which is on my shirt, which is why <laughs> I had people like, why in the world are you wearing a T-shirt that says, mind the gap on it? Well, I bought this in London after seeing it all over the London underground subway. Mind the gap. When we say, mind your manners, what do we mean? We mean pay attention to your manners, right? When they say mind the gap, they mean pay attention to the gap that's between the, the walkway and the train. Because on some stations, you get out and, you know, it's like a foot between the, the sidewalk and the train. And if you don't mind the gap or watch out for that gap, you know, you'll end up stepping down in that big crack and twisting your ankle. And this phrase really stuck with me as I uh, considered a gap of a different kind, of a spiritual kind. And it's another one that we want to mind or to pay attention to. You know those psychiatric sessions where the doctor says a word and then you say the first thing that comes to your mind in word association? I'd like us to do that here today. Okay, I'm going to say a word and you blurt out the first thing that comes to your mind. Now, filter it, keep it clean, but first thing that comes to your mind whenever I say a word, you, uh, you let, it, let it fly, okay? Let's see how it goes. Hot. Good. Day. Boy. Good. All right, that's great. Now let's take it to the spiritual level. All right. We got a hot, hot day, and there's a boy there. So, so far. All right, how's this one? Heaven. God. See? That's always happened. What do we do before this? Before it was opposites. Hot, cold, right? Day, night. Boy, girl. Heaven, hell. God. Well, you don't want to say Satan. Is that the first thing you think of when you think of God? Right? How about this one? Temptation. That's great. I heard evil. <clears throat> the others were just kind of nice. Man. <laughs> you don't really know what to say to that, do you? What's the first thing that pops in your mind? Well, I don't know. You know, nothing really pops to my mind when I think of temptation. There is nothing associated with it, or at least not, you know, like hot, cold, heaven and hell. Why? Some would say sin. Some would say obedience. Some aren't real sure what to say. There is a gap between stimulus and response. Kind of a fancy way of saying there is a moment of time between something that prods you and what you do about it. There is a gap between stimulus and response. And how we mind that gap, as it were, between the temptations that the world gives or between a word that is spoken or a thought that comes through your mind or maybe uh, a scent that you recognize or a person that you haven't seen in a while or somebody says something that is really rude or a car cuts you off on the highway. There is a gap between stimulus and response. And what you do in that gap, the decision that you make in that gap, makes all the difference in the world 
on how your life goes. Turn, if you would, in your Bible to Mark chapter 12. As I said, we're continuing in our series on the spiritual disciplines. We're going to borrow some verses from our series on Mark. We haven't even gotten to Mark 12 yet. But it's good to look at this particular issue of the discipline of obedience and the discipline of worship. You know, obedience and worship don't really seem like they go together a lot. You know, Brian explained to us some weeks ago how fasting and prayer go together. And we looked uh, the last couple weeks on, in the Bible as well on, you know, meditation and scripture memory and study and reading. All those disciplines sort of make sense with one another, but how does obedience and worship fit together? Well, that's what we're going to look at. Here in Mark chapter 12, Jesus is asked a question. In fact, he is in the middle of a volley of questions down in verse 28. Before this, the Sadducees, the religious leaders, have come up to him, basically trying to trap him in a statement. And they're asking him all these questions. And in verse 28 is one of particular interest. Look at that with me. It says, And one of the scribes came and heard them arguing, and recognizing that he had answered them well, asked him, What commandment is the foremost of all? Literally, which is the first? And of course, it doesn't mean uh, first, like which is the very first commandment given, but which is first in priority? What's at the top of the list as far as priority? which is why they've translated it foremost. Which is the most important commandment? The scribes, this guy that asked the question is a scribe, they were the religious leaders of the day who were basically like the Xerox machines of the first century. Their job was to copy the scriptures. That's what they did. Because after a bunch of handling, of course, no paper lasts forever, and you have to copy the scripture, otherwise when the paper disintegrates, you don't have it. And so there were professional uh, leaders whose job was to copy the Bible, and they were called scribes. In fact, we get our word scribble from the same root word. Their job was to copy it, and they were considered experts in the law and the Bible because they spent all their time in it copying. And this expert asked, what's the most important? The rabbis counted about 613 individual commandments in the Old Testament. And they spent some amount of time trying to figure out, you know, kind of a hierarchy, which is the most important, which is, you know, important but not as important as this one. And so the question would have been a common one to get Jesus' opinion, which is the most important one. And look at what Jesus answered him. Verse 29. Jesus answered, The foremost is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy a verse that is called the Shema. Shema is a Hebrew word that means hear, from the command here, hear, O Israel. So they call this whole part here Shema. This is Judaism's basic confession of faith. 
Traditionally and still today, pious Jews will recite this verse when they get out of bed, and they'll recite this verse before they go to bed. They begin and end each day with the foundation of their belief that God is one. The Lord is our God. He is our God, corporately, all of us. But he is also your God, personally. Uh, And he is one. That he is one doesn't uh, negate the idea of the Trinity, that there is one God who eternally exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Even biblically, in the Old Testament, you've got this idea. Uh, The word for God is plural, and it's ending. And depending on the context, you translate it God, like here, uh, or gods. Well, this isn't a translation of Elohim, but it's still, it's quoting a verse that is. Um, but in other, tra- in other contexts, that word can be translated gods, because it really is plural in its form. But what's interesting, in one part of Genesis, God called Adam and Eve, and he said that they were one. Adam and Eve were one, one flesh. And the same word used there for one is the word that's used in this verse in Deuteronomy, saying God is one. Adam and Eve, two persons, were called one. Uh, God, three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God. He alone is one. Then this fundamental truth, that there is one God, is followed by a fundamental command, this God you are to love. Jesus says you're to love the Lord with all your heart. Literally, the way that Mark wrote this, or the way that he indicated what Jesus meant, is that you are to love the Lord not with all your heart. More specifically, it's from out of all your heart, because the word that Mark uses literally means from out of. Our translators have kind of paraphrased that idea uh, to say with all your heart but you need to understand it in a more specific way. What is the source of your love? Love the Lord from out of all your heart, from out of all your soul, from out of all your mind and all your strength. And he also says that you're to love him from out of all these things. The word there for all is the Greek word halos. We get our word whole. means complete. We also get the word holocaust, means burnt whole. That there is no part of your life that is segregated off for yourself. But all of who you are, mind, body, intellect, emotion, will, is to be devoted to the Lord. You are to love the Lord from out of all of who you are. And this command to love God is central to to a Jew's thinking. This is why they would always say it first and last at the end of the day. And why is this called the greatest command? Not, is it because that God wants, you know, simply to be loved? Well, he does, but there's a bigger reason than that. The reason that this is the foremost command is because all the other commands are simply a means of fulfilling this one. To love the Lord your God. How do you do that? Well, you love him by obeying all that he has commanded. How do you fulfill the command to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? How do you do that? Well, the rest of all the other commands are the way that you do that. You love God by obedience. This is not simply an Old Testament 
uh, mindset. Jesus said as well in John 14, look at the screen at this verse. He says, whoever has my commands and obeys them, he is the one who loves me. Whoever has my commands and obeys them, he is the one who loves me. Do you love Christ? I think there's probably not a person here that if I were to walk down the line and just say, do you love God? Probably most folks would say, yeah, I do. And yet Jesus' teaching says that love, God defines love as obedience. Whoever has my commands and obeys them, he is the one who loves me. The text shows us that your Lord defines love as obedience to his revealed will. Obedience to his revealed will. What's God's will for my life? Probably not a one of us here haven't, haven't asked that question. But you know, our problem is not so much who to marry, what job to take, where to live, where to move, all these gray areas of our lives that we struggle over, wondering, you know, God, what do you want? in this particular area where I can't find a chapter and verse to tell me. And yet, the Scripture tells us that if you are obedient to the will He has revealed, whoever has my commands and obeys them, He is the one who loves me, you're going to have much more of a clear understanding of all these other areas and what you should do in them. You really will. And we'll see that even more so as we look at another verse here in a few minutes. But whoever has my commands and obeys them. It's not whoever has my commands and remembers them. Whoever has my commands and can recite them. Who has them memorized. Whoever has my commands and obeys them. Before Jesus ascended to heaven, he gathered all his disciples together and he said, I want you to go to all the nations. I want you to make disciples of these nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And teaching them to know everything I've commanded? No. Teaching them to obey. God defines love as obedience. In the Old Testament, King Saul was all hung up on ritual. Figured that's what God wanted. Samuel tells him, you need to wait you know, a certain amount of days, and I'm going to come to this particular place, and I'm going to offer the sacrifice, which only the prophet of the Lord was supposed to do. Well, Samuel doesn't show, and Saul thinks, you know, I've got to offer this sacrifice because here come the Philistines and they're going to squash us. And so Saul offers it, thinking that's what God wants, that God needs this religious activity in order to be pleased to bless Saul in war. And then Samuel shows up right then and says, does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the voice of the Lord? You see, God is not all that much impressed that we do all of our religious things to try to impress God. As much as he is pleased with a life, a heart that desires to obey. God wants your obedience so much more than he wants a confession. Because if you obey, there's no need to confess. And I don't mean to segregate that, but that as to divorce them as if, you know, they're on two different levels. Uh, I, don't, I probably shouldn't polarize them that much. But there is a great truth in what Samuel told Saul. The Lord does not delight 
does the Lord delight in offerings and sacrifices, which were what? They were for sin, as much as in obeying the voice of the Lord. And if you do that, there's no need for offerings and sacrifices. God has much more delight in obedience than he does in having to get rid of your sin. God desires that we obey. In fact, that's how he defines love. Love is defined as obedience to what he's revealed. Martin Luther King Jr. said one time, he had a message called Rediscovering Lost Values. Martin Luther King Jr. And he said this, I think it's a great quote. He says, we must remember that it's impossible to affirm the existence, that it's possible to affirm the existence of God with your lips and to deny the existence of God with your life. The most dangerous form of atheism is not theoretical atheism, but practical atheism. And what he means is, it's not that dangerous for an atheist to live like an atheist. Of course he is. What's dangerous is for a believer in Jesus Christ to say, I believe, and then to live like he doesn't. That is practical atheism. He is one Lord. He is the only one. And he's it. And the size of your God determines the size of your motivation in life. If you view God as a big God, then you're going to have a big view of your sin. We need a bigger understanding of who God is. You know, just think about something as simple as your hand and the intricacies of the way it can work and how God gave us fingernails to, you know, to get splinters out and to pick up something small and fingerprints to help us grip here just on the hand where we grab and how the, the wrist can twist and move and how the whole body works as a marvelous machine that's been marvelously put together. How the human eye can focus and open and close and so much faster and more intricately than any lens that man can make. You look at how the creation that God has made reproduces itself after its own kind. And the seasons come and everything works just like clockwork and you can see the beauty and the, the, the intelligence of God just in creation, which is what it was designed to do. Romans 1 tells us. It was designed to reveal him, or at least that there is a God we're accountable to. And that he created all of that simply by speaking this is how smart God is, how wise and powerful, with a word, and it came into existence. From nothing, he created everything. This is the power of our God. And we're told that this is the God that we can trust. This is a God who will never forsake us, never leave us. He will always be there. We have his promise. He is a powerful God. If you've got a God that's that big, and he's that holy, and he says, you've got to be absolutely as holy as me to be in my presence, then all of a sudden, your big God, you see your sin is very big. But if you don't really see God as that big a deal, then you don't really see your sin as that big a deal. You've got a big God, then you've got big sin. Little God, little sin. Big God, big forgiveness for you. Little God, little forgiveness. Big God, big obedience, big motivation to obey. He's a wonderful Lord. Little God, eh, no big deal. Take it or leave it. 
Jesus asked, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? The Lord who is one, who is all-powerful, and who is all-loving, and who is all-wrathful at sin, took your sin, placed it on the cross, gave it to Jesus Christ to bear, he died, paid for it, rose again to show that it was paid for, and now he has, for if you've placed your faith in Christ and you believe that, now he has nothing left but love for you in his life. No wrath. All of the wrath that God intended for you and your sin was placed on Jesus Christ when he died on the cross. There is no more wrath left for those. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Even when he disciplines you, he does it in love. Jesus wasn't done as he defined love as obedience. Look at verse 31. He continues. Mark 12, 31. The second is this, meaning the second command. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Notice he says commandment, singular, greater than these, plural. The one commandment Jesus is referring to here that is involved in both these commands to love God and love people is love. He defined the whole Old Testament in that command to love him, to love the Lord your God with all of who you are from out of your entire being. Now you're in Mark 12. Turn to your right to Romans 12. If we were to return to our word association exercise, what would you think of? What would be the first thing that pops into your mind when you hear the word worship? What do you think of when you think of worship? Many people think of singing, like we did this morning. Right? When you think of worship, you probably think of singing. Uh, you may think of going to church, like we'll ask somebody, where do you worship? Meaning, where do you go to church? And yet worship is so much broader than simply these two little acts that we do on Sunday morning between 10.45 and 11.45. Look at how, the, uh, how Paul writes this. The New International Version translates it this way. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. This, he says, is your spiritual act of worship. What is? What's my act of worship? I mean, I worship when I go to church and sing songs. Paul says, this is your spiritual act of worship. What is that? The offering of your body to God. The offering of your life to God. Why in the world would you offer your body as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to him? in view of God's mercy. You will never worship God with a sincere heart until you properly understand how indebted you are to God's mercy. You will never worship God with a sincere heart until you properly understand how indebted you are to God's mercy. Now the level of it will increase, but the sincerity of it can't until you realize your obligation to God's mercy. 
that God was only obligated to judge you for your sin. He was not obligated to send Jesus to die. He was only obligated to judge you for your sin. That was his obligation as a just God. And yet, from his love, he provided a, a substitute to die in your place. In view of his mercy, in view of the fact that he wasn't obligated to do that for you, but he did it, in view of that, your response is to be uh, offering your life, your body, as a living sacrifice. We worship God when we sacrifice our own selfish desires to accomplish God's desire in our lives. How do we know what God's desire is? Look at the very next verse. Verse 2. And do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Remember we talked just a little bit ago? How am I going to know who to marry, where to live, what job to take, all that? If you are meditating on the Word of God, if you are allowing it to transform your mind, then you're going to have a much better sensitivity to where God is leading you. But our problem is we're thinking one thing and we should be thinking another. Kathy and I over the last year have built a house, kind of a trial by fire if you've ever built a house. And uh, we moved into it last month, and I was walking around in it, kind of making a list. They call it a punch list of things that need to be done before, you know, you feel like you're finished, which you never are. And I was in the girls' bathroom, my daughter's bathroom, kind of standing there with my pad and pencil, and was writing some things down. And above, on the next floor, we had a, have a little storage room right above their bathroom, and we had a bunch of stuff stored in there. And as I was standing there, I heard on the floor above, scurrying. And it wasn't a cockroach. You know, it was like big. And I'm thinking, oh, great. You know, during the construction, you know, the doors were open and we had all that stuff up there and, you know, we've got rats up in the, up in the deal. So I went up there, doors locked, and Kathy had the key. So I went and got the key, went to Home Depot, got some rat poison and rat traps, got up there, you know, opened the door you know, making sounds to scare it and move whatever's there. Nothing. Silent. Thinking, okay, here we go. And I, I heard it in the rafters here, and so, you know, the, the, the plywood floor kind of stops, and then, you know, those joists that go, and you have to make sure you step on the joists, otherwise you step on the sheetrock and you fall through to the next floor. So I'm standing on those joists with my box of rat poison, and I'm down like this, and I'm just about to put it on the ground, and out jumps a cat. Now, when you're thinking rat, and out jumps something as big as your arm, there is not much of a gap between stimulus and response. My only honor before God is I didn't scream like a woman. But I did scream. And I mean, it scared me. I'm thinking, rat, now it comes the thing this long. You know, and then you feel like an idiot. Why? Of course it's a cat. I mean, what else could have been that huge making that sound? And what had happened is during the construction, this mom cat had come in there, 
got underneath between these joists and it had kittens. Nice, safe, dry place for her to, to, uh, to be. And so instead of the rat poison, I picked that back up and uh, called animal control and came and got her. And uh, I'll save for another day the, the uh, further of this story where the cats, some of the kittens fell down in the wall and had to reach down and get them out and they clawed the tar out of my hand. But uh, we'll save that. That's another one. But I tell you what, it made a big transformation in my mind when I went from thinking rat to cat. Because no longer am I afraid. No longer am I thinking we've got pests in here that, I'm, that it may take me weeks to get a hold of. Uh, it was a totally different mindset. And our problem as we walk through life is the same. We're thinking rat, we need to think cat. We're thinking in this world, this is the way that we live. This is what I need to be thinking. This is where I need to be putting my money. This is where I need to be spending my time. And in reality, we need to have our mind transformed to realize, no, you seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these other things that you're worrying about, God's going to take care of. We need a transformation of our thinking. And this is, in part, what Jesus means when he says to love God with all your mind. Because the mind instructs every other part of who you are. It instructs your uh, emotion, your heart, your soul. It instructs your spiritual life. That's why we're told to have our mind transformed. It instructs your body, because your body only does what your mind tells it to do. Right? Who was it that said this? Nobody got it first hour. Let's see if you can get it. This is a quote. If you say something loud enough and long enough, people will begin to believe it. You know who said that? If you say something loud enough and long enough, people will begin to believe it. Yes. Who said that? Okay, Sanja Bradshaw. Give her a free tape or something. Fantastic. That's right. Adolf Hitler said that. And if you ever watch the old newsreels of him giving speeches loud enough, uh, he does it, doesn't he? His mindset is, if you're exposed to something long enough, even if it's the most boneheaded philosophy of politics, people are going to buy into it, and Germany did, by and large, at least the government did during that time. Listen to what Dave Fincher said. He said, this is why it is a true discipline to love God with all of our minds. It isn't merely a matter of feeling good about God or even wanting to love God. We must grow in our belief about God. We must dwell on Him. We must study to understand Him more, His love, His character, His actions. There is a treasure trove of knowledge that God wants to share with us. He is the greatest thought our mind can hold. What are we waiting for? You notice in this verse, we put an and at the beginning. The New International Version does not have that and. It just starts with do. But the, uh, the original language, the and is there. If you've got New American Standard, I think it's there too. And it's important that the and is there. So if you've got the NIV, get out a ballpoint pen and write it in ink because it needs to be there. So often we'll separate these two ideas. In view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Great. Done. Now, 
do not be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world. No, it's and. It's one big thought. Because you are not going to offer your body as a living sacrifice to God if you're not also letting your mind be transformed. Because it is the mind that informs the body what to do. It's one unit. It's one thought. You accept truth and you deny what's false. You move from rat to cat, from what's false and what you fear to what is true. And it can have a practical benefit to your life. We see very clearly that worship involves application of God's word. In fact, your Lord defines obedience to his revealed will as an act of worship. This is your spiritual act of worship. What? To offer my body to God. Your spiritual act of worship is not just coming and singing, or coming to church, or giving money, or serving, or doing any other religious thing. That's fine. But God is most honored when your heart is obeying Him in view of His mercy, out of gratitude. That is worship at its purest sense. You've got to begin to see your life as a worship service, not simply Sunday morning. That You make your life a prayer to God. Your life is a worship service. That your mind being renewed, that your body as a sacrifice, be it mind and body, all of who you are, is to worship God. It is the means through which you worship. It is worship to hold your tongue when your sinful nature wants to lash out. It is worship to keep your internet activity pure. It is worship when you take a thought captive, be it jealousy, envy, laziness, or anything else. We've heard it before that the only trouble with a living sacrifice is what? It wants to crawl off the altar. That we have that choice daily to offer our body as a living sacrifice. Right? How do we do that? How do we keep it where it needs to be? You've got to keep God's mercy in view. In view of God's mercy. It's the motivation behind the Christian life that you and I are called to live. If your motivation is guilt, it's not going to be enough. If your motivation is uh, to try to impress God, it's not going to be enough. How do I know God's impressed? Your motivation to live the Christian life is not guilt, and it's not to try to impress God. He could be no more impressed with you, because when he looks at you, he sees his son Jesus. He sees no guilt. You could have no guilt. All of that was placed on Jesus Christ. The motivation to offer your body as a living sacrifice is not guilt. It's not trying to impress God. The motivation is in view of his mercy. It's gratitude because of what he's done for you when Jesus died. In fact, this is why Paul says this is your spiritual act of worship. Literally, you could translate it, this is your logical or your reasonable act of worship. The old King James translates it reasonable. And it makes sense that way. In other words, it's reasonable in view of God's mercy to live this way. It's logical. I mean, why wouldn't you do it? Because he's done this for you, it's logical that you're going to live for him in this way. Your Monday worship is as critical to God as your Sunday worship. The true worship of God is that which you do every single day. George Barna did some research that says that 60% of adults that come to church don't prepare themselves for worship. In other words, you just kind of come in and sit down and don't really anticipate God's presence. 
and consequently, many people don't experience his presence. Not that it's all about experience, but part of who we are is emotion, certainly. And why don't you feel that? I want to read what Barnes said. He said this, quote, Without giving themselves time to clear their minds and hearts of their daily distraction and other problems, many people attend a worship event but never enter a worshipful frame of mind. A large share of churchgoers do not pray, meditate, confess, or focus on God prior to the start of a worship event, and one consequence is that they find it difficult to connect, to connect with God spiritually. And that makes sense, doesn't it? Now, it makes sense here in this context, but take this context, this worship service, out into the real worship service in your life. If you don't spend time preparing your heart, you're not going to worship God and experience His presence. If you don't spend time to use Barna's own words, he means it here for our gathering, but it could also go for your life tomorrow morning. If you don't spend time clearing your mind and heart of your daily distractions and problems, of meditating, confessing, and focusing on God prior to the start of your worship event, then you're going to find it difficult to connect with God. That's what Brian taught us about the quiet time, that one of the big purposes in that time is your relationship with Christ and setting aside that time to connect with Him. And if you don't do that and allow your mind to begin to be transformed, when you get out into the world, you are not going to offer your body as a living sacrifice. Instead, you're going to crawl off the altar, and you're going to do it your own way, and you're going to regret it. Listen to this quote by Timothy Christensen. It's a great quote. He says, If worship is just one thing we do, everything becomes mundane. If worship is the one thing we do, everything takes on eternal significance. You see? Worship is not Sunday morning. This is your spiritual act of worship to offer your bodies a living sacrifice. It's your entire life. It is what you do. Your, your life is to be a worship service in honor of Jesus Christ who died for you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you today that you have given us the means by which we can mind the gap between stimulus and response. That we can prepare our minds ahead of time. That we can have our minds renewed by having your commands and therefore obeying them. By meditating on the truth of Scripture and letting it become such second nature that when we are bumped, Bible spills out. And our response to stimulus is obedience rather than responding in the flesh or in the sinful nature. Lord, I pray for any who are here today who do not have that, that saving relationship with you, that for whatever reason, their trust their, uh, their righteousness is still in their own lives and in their own hands to offer you a life of good works. That instead, Father, that they might transfer that to Jesus Christ, who died for them. And then, in view of his mercy, then to offer their lives as a living sacrifice. And Lord, even for us as believers, we come back once again to the cross and confess that it's in view of your mercy. Out of such gratitude for what you've done, we offer ourselves to you and we ask that our mind might be transformed 
that our response to the stimuli of this world would be obedience and worship. In Jesus' name we pray. Hi, this is Wayne Stiles. You can receive a weekly devotional by email by subscribing to my blog at waynestiles.com. There you'll also find resources for devotional and Bible land study, as well as a way for us to connect via Facebook and Twitter. There's even an opportunity to support this weekly podcast with a donation. That's waynestiles.com. Thanks for listening.